This is Auto Line This Week, the show that gets you inside the global automotive industry. Auto Line This Week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode. Hi, I'm John McElroy, and welcome to AutoLine This Week. Today, we're going to be talking about Toyota, or I should say, a lot of the technology that Toyota has. And that's because my special guest today is Gil Pratt. He is the chief scientist at Toyota and also the CEO of the Toyota Research Institute. Gil, so great to see you again. Well, very nice to be here, John. I got a lot of topics I want to cover today, Uh, electric cars, autonomous cars, all kinds of things like that. But let's start out on the EV side. There seems to have been a sea change in just the last two years on the part of uh, traditional automakers. They seem to be getting a lot more serious about electric cars. Would you say that's the same thing at Toyota, that something's changed in the last two years? So I think what's mostly changed is actually the degree to which we're being open and public about what we're doing. Uh, We've actually been in the uh, electrification business for quite a long time. Of course, you know, starting with the Prius and a number of uh, uh, BEVs before that. Um, But um, for us, it's really a question of looking at what's likely to happen in the future and also thinking about what we don't know about the future and coming up with a strategy that can be adaptive to all the different possibilities for the future. What has changed, uh, to be very clear about it, is we're much more open now about what those possibilities are. Yeah, because, you know, and you are well aware of this, you know, out there in the Twitterverse, there's all these accusations that Toyota has been dragging its heels on electric vehicles. It's put too much attention onto fuel cells or to hybrids and the like. But but you're saying that the, you're go, we're going to be hearing a whole lot more about electrics these days. Uh, that is that is absolutely right. So what has changed is uh, back in December, uh, as an example, um, our president, Akio Toyota, he actually announced what we had been planning for some time inside the company. And uh, that's a rather remarkable number, which is by uh, 2030, uh, we're expecting that 35% of our vehicles will be battery electric vehicles or BEVs. And we had been uh, looking at that trajectory for quite some time, but generally Toyota tends to uh, sort of under promise. And uh, we think that that's actually a very good thing to do because we, we don't want to lead folks on. And so uh, this was a little bit more of uh, you know, opening up the curtain and letting people uh, you know, see what we are uh, thinking. And we think that that's a very reasonable uh, target for us. Gil, when I last talked with you, we we touched on this uh, solid state battery that Toyota is developing. And a lot of people think this could be the next generation of battery. You told me then that uh, Toyota might have this v- available in production in mid-decade, this decade, so the 2025-ish timeframe. Is that still on track? Yes, that is still on track right now. And to be very clear, uh, that solid state battery is going to be tested first in a hybrid electric vehicle, which sounds like kind of a strange thing to do because after all, the great promise of solid state batteries, one of the great things is that they might be able to be charged much faster than uh, conventional lithium ion batteries. Uh, But we actually think that uh, because the costs of the battery cells are still quite high, no one has yet really figured out Uh, how to uh, manufacture them in uh, high volume with low cost, that a hybrid vehicle is actually the right place to start. And the reason is the battery pack in a hybrid vehicle is much smaller than in a battery electric vehicle. 
the power levels of charging and discharging, because that battery pack is smaller, when you press on the brakes and you have regenerative braking, or you uh, hit the accelerator, the actual power per cell is somewhat higher than it is in a BEV, and the number of cycles that it's going to go through are quite a bit more. So actually, it's a tougher job to put a battery inside of a hybrid electric vehicle than a BEV. So we are starting there so that we can learn the most doing it. That's uh, that's absolutely true that a, a hybrid battery is going to be under much more stress. Uh, why go that route? Well, we need to learn. And we think that the important thing to do is to do what we call Kaizen. That's continuous improvement where uh, everything that we do, we never make a perfect car. What we say is that we make ever better cars. And in this same way, we're sure that the battery is going to be good enough for this use, but we're also going to learn a whole lot by doing it. And we expect that that's a good kind of a stepping stone uh, for price reduction in the future, where it will then become practical from a cost point of view uh, for a battery electric vehicle. Now, when you say that you're going to put this, uh, you'll be testing it in a hybrid, is that going to be uh, testing done within Toyota or you're actually going to be putting these out for sale to the public? Uh, so I am not sure. I know it will be in a vehicle that's actually on the road, but I'm not sure exactly what the scale of it's going to be. Uh, we still have a few years to go. It's uh, 2022 right now. We have three more years, uh, but uh, we will see how uh, the development goes and uh, De depending on that will depend on what uh, scale it's going to be, but we're sure that it will be uh, ready for some kind of testing uh, within three years. So would it go, I got to press you on this now, would it go in a Prius? Because that's always been sort of the fuel economy leader. Would it go in the RAV4 hybrid, which is the volume seller, or would you put it yeah. in something like the Tundra full-size pickup, which you've got a hybrid on, and so, really do something with pickup fuel economy? So, so we are thinking about a wide range of uh, different hybrid vehicles. In fact, there's going to be many different ones to choose from. I don't actually know which one we're going to end up choosing as being the right target to start with. But we uh, specifically, we want to start with the most difficult case in terms of the electrical characteristics, how we're going to uh, sort of uh, sub subject this, uh, this battery to the harshest conditions. And then if it can do well there, uh, then it's just a matter of getting the cost down and make it um, usable in a wide range of uh, of other vehicles. How low can the cost go on that? I'm, I'm told right now that uh, lithium-ion battery costs are just under $100 per kilowatt hour. Where do you think you could come in with your solid-state battery? Well, so our solid-state batteries now are higher in cost, and so that's, of course, part of the problem. When you're manufacturing a lithium-ion battery, you essentially are applying a paste to each of the foils that are used within there. There's a uh, dielectric of some sort, there's a um, barrier of some sort that goes in there and then it's all wound up and put in some kind of a can or if it's what we call a prismatic cell, it's folded back and forth and put in something that's more rectangular in shape. The manufacturing ways for making a solid state battery are significantly more complex. And they're actually closer to the way that semiconductors are made than the way that uh, batteries traditionally have been made. So making one for the lab bench isn't that hard, but making them in volume in production at very low cost is quite hard. And so we don't think that within the next few years, we're going to have cost parity with non-solid state cells. Uh, but we believe that if we can get the lifetime issue solved, if we can get the power uh, density and energy uh, density issues solved, both in terms of volumetric density and also uh, density by um, mass. If we can get all of those things solved, uh, the um, 
the cost is sort of the next stage for trying to make this thing all uh, work. So it is going to be uh, at least some time till those costs come down. But we are very excited a, about it, and uh, significant progress is being made. You mentioned that these uh, solid-state batteries can be charged faster. You know, I think if you get a high-speed charger these days, sort of the bleeding edge is 20 to 30 minutes to get an 80% charge. How might a solid-state battery stack up against that? So we aren't sure of where the limit is yet. So the big idea is that in a solid-state battery, because the electrolyte is much, much thinner, and it's also a solid material, the resistance to current that goes on there is much less. And so the power levels that you can use both for charging and uh, discharging without generating excess heat can theoretically be much, much more. And so that's actually what we're pressing on the most now. The second issue that looks very exciting is a potential for a lifetime that's much longer than traditional cells. And this particularly has to do with a lifetime under fast charging. Many people focus on the number of kilowatts that comes out of the DC uh, fast charger as an example and saying, well, I have a 150,000 watt DC fast charger, so of course I can fill my car up in just a few minutes. But they forget that what happens, of course, is that the batteries in the car get hot and it doesn't stay at 150 uh, kilowatts for the whole charge. It actually begins to uh, taper down and that's for two reasons. One is because of heat. And the other one is that as these lithium uh, ions are moving from one side of the battery cell to the other, if they move too quickly, uh, they don't form an even coat on the other side. They don't go in between the, uh, the atoms that are set up on the uh, other side in the right way, and it can degrade the lifetime of the cell. And so what we're hoping in the solid state space is that, in fact, we're going to solve both the power density issue and also the lifetime uh, issue. But the way that we do things at uh, Toyota is very much step by step, and we try very much to be humble and not to claim that we're going to do anything sooner than we're sure that we are going to do it. Mm -hmm. So what I can say is that you know we're on track to have uh, something in a in a hybrid uh, test vehicle within the next few years. And exactly what the scale of that's going to be, I am not sure of, uh, but it's going to be out there, and that will be. Uh, sort of the next step in trying to make these these things real. Gil, as you know, too, the, the public's really worried about battery fires, even though, as you well know, too, internal combustion engine cars catch fire by the hundreds, you know, uh, uh, almost 100 every day in the United States alone. Are solid state batteries better at preventing fires from happening? So uh, the answer to that is that they have the potential for being safer. And the reason is that sometimes the, um, the electrolytes that are used in traditional lithium ion cells, cells are either flammable as a chemical by themselves or have the potential of breaking down into uh, components that are flammable themselves. And so solid state batteries, if they're designed with uh, per particular uh, chemicals, can be less flammable inherently than some of the uh, non-solid state cells. In addition, there's always this engineering trade-off that goes on. So if you, uh, for instance, have a, um, have a battery and you push it really hard, if you uh, charge it really, really fast, if you draw a whole lot of power from it, if you let the temperature get too high, what often will get traded off is both lifetime and sometimes if you push it really hard, the safety as, as well. And so when we're designing a battery system, when we're deciding how to use batteries in any of our cars, we're always looking at all of these parameters. And of course, for us, 
safety is the most important one. So we want to make sure that that is really never a serious um, issue. And if necessary, we'll trade off the other things, including the total capacity, how many, how many uh, kilowatt hours we are going to store. One of the things I hear from people all the time uh, who are concerned about electric cars, worried about them, is, oh, I don't want to spend all this money and then the battery is going to go bad and I'll have to spend a fortune to replace it. How long can you make these things last? Well, so this is extremely important, uh, John. And I think that when people, you know, take the money that they've worked so hard um, to uh, earn and they, you know, put it into purchasing a, a car, that is a tremendously important asset that they have bought. And they want to make sure that the value of uh, their car doesn't go down with uh, time. Uh, what we've decided is that our batteries will retain at least 90% of their capacity for 10 years. And uh, we think that that is a you know, very um, sort of reassuring uh, figure for most folks when they think about buying one of these cars. How cheap does the cost of the batteries have to get? You know, if you go back a few years ago, the thinking was, well, if we can get to $100 per kilowatt hour, we'll match the price of an internal combustion engine. Now I'm told it really should be around $80. What are your <laughs> thoughts as to where the price should be? So um, it's not a hard number. It's sort of a trade-off. And what you find is that as you're approaching these numbers of $100 per kilowatt hours, 80, et cetera, then the, uh, the bracket of when cars are actually practical and competitive with gasoline-fueled cars, uh, they begin to overlap each other. But it's still tough. And batteries have uh, two uh, dip difficulties right now, right off the bat, and then I'm going to add one more. Uh, the first is cost, which uh, you're talking a about now. The next is that they're heavy. And if you compare, you know, the weight of a, you know, 15-gallon gas tank versus, you know, thousands of pounds of, of uh, batteries that go into uh, a BEV, it's, it's really no comparison. The Model X that I have, for instance, it weighs 5,500 pounds. That is a heavy car, roughly twice what a car that is just the same shape would be if it wasn't a uh, BEV. Now, um, but it can be worth it. I think that if we care about carbon neutrality and there's enough charging infrastructure that's out there, it's a very good choice to have BEVs, but it's not the only choice that is there. And that's what we're trying to say. And let me mention just sort of other issues too. Uh, besides um, the cost and the weight, there's also the materials that go into making the battery in the first place. And what we think about at Toyota very much is, let's figure out how each battery cell that we make can be used in the most effective way towards uh, carbon neutrality. So if we build a car with a battery pack that's too large and someone uses it for commuting each day, which tends to be around 30 to 40 miles, uh, and then plugs it in each night, they're actually carrying around all of this uh, battery pack that they're not using very much. And we don't want that to be true. So we're trying to right size the uh, battery pack in each case and give customers a palette of options to choose from. And then the final thing is that whenever you make one of these cells, you really have to think about its whole arc and its whole lifetime, which is how are you gonna recycle it at the end? And we think that that matters very much. And our pledge for carbon neutrality is by 2050, we're going to be carbon neutral for the entire life cycle of the whole car. I've talked to some of these companies that are working on recycling batteries. They're saying somewhere down the road, now this is maybe a couple of decades out, 
there might be enough batteries to recycle that we can stop mining and literally just harvest the materials out of old batteries. Do you think that's possible? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that is the goal and we absolutely share that goal. The question is how to get the cost down so that it is economically feasible to do that. And also how to make sure that we're not using too much energy in the process of trying to do it, particularly if the energy that we're using isn't carbon neutral to begin with. So we don't wanna add to CO2 that's going out into the air in the process of either making the cells or actually uh, doing the recycling. Moving off batteries, but sticking with electric cars for the moment. I'm, I'm not sure if you're the right person to ask, but I'm talking to you, so I'm going to ask you. <laughs> sure. um, a lot of automakers, including Toyota, have modified uh, their ICE architectures, the, the, the platforms of their piston engine cars and trucks, to be able to accommodate batteries and electric motors. Others are going completely clean sheet design. You know, from uh, not not carrying over anything, just from uh, day one, it's going to be designed as a pure electric. Where does Toyota fall on that? So we are somewhere in the middle. And uh, I think part of this is because we do have, you know, many decades of experience with making cars. And a lot of that know-how is inside the particular design of the chassis and the other parts of the architecture of the car. We don't want to throw that all out and just start from scratch because we worry that if we do throw that out, some of the uh, very hard earned lessons will get lost in the process. So uh, as you may know, we have for, um, for uh, gasoline fueled cars, we have a new architecture we've been using for a few years called TNGA. And it stands for Toyota New Global Architecture. And it uh, is basically the, art, uh, the architecture that's underneath many of our cars that we make now. And for BEVs, we've uh, developed this new one which is called ETNGA for um, electric vehicles. And the idea there is that it's not completely a redesign and it's a mixture between some things that are fixed and some things that are variable. And so we think that uh, with ETNGA, we actually can get the best of both worlds. We can not lose the know-how that uh, we've accumulated you know, for quality and durability and reliability with many of our cars in the past and actually what we are known for while at the same time changing the architecture just enough so that it is accommodating to what BEVs are actually like. So for instance, the, uh, the batteries inside of ETNGA are within the floor pan, which is a very, very good thing to do. Right, and uh, I am assuming too, TNGA and ETNGA can be flexed down the same assembly lines. Is that how Toyota is going to do that? Because Others have said, if you dedicate an assembly plant to making only battery electric vehicles because they have fewer parts, you can pick up a 25 to 30% uh, labor productivity advantage. Which way do you think Toyota is going to do it? So um, again, we are being very flexible in it. So we understand the advantage that you get by specializing the line just for one type of uh, pro product, but we also think that it's very hard to predict exactly how large of a facility you're going to need. And the investments in these plants, you know, are very large and they take a number of years between the time you make the decision to start one and when it's actually putting cars out. And so it's kind of one of those decisions where your predictive powers have to be very, very good. And we believe that the optimal strategy for any of us is to uh, be flexible when we're not sure and then to become more certain when we're trying to squeeze uh, the most efficiency out of it. So we will begin 
by actually having an, an architecture where we can mix different types of cars within the same line. And the reason that we do that is actually a very fundamental uh, Toyota principle. You've probably heard about uh, this Japanese world called Muda, and it means waste. And we try to get rid of waste as much as we can. No Muda. No Muda, no Muda. Uh, I hear that all the time, and I tell people that all of the uh, time. It's a way of life. Be as efficient as you can. Uh, but the other is uh, something called Mura. And what that means is try to have things as even as possible. Don't have sort of a, a sudden rush of cars that need to get made, and then the line is slack, and then it's a sudden rush, and then slack once, once more. And the way to have um, you know, Mura minimized as much as possible is to mix different vehicles on the same assembly line. And then what you find is you know, by the law of averages, it's very unlikely that sales will go down on both types at the same time, or even if there's three different uh, types, and by mixing them up like, like that, you actually gain significant efficiency with um, making the uh, volume, the uh, number of cars built per, per day, much more even than it would be if you just had one line for each type of car. Yeah, yeah, and Toyota's been the master of that for decades now too, of, of having that very smooth kind of process in, in manufacturing. Look, I've talked so much about battery electrics and electric cars. I'm dying to ask you about uh, autonomous vehicles sure, as, as sure. well, because I think that's even why you first came to Toyota, wasn't it? Working on uh, autonomy? Uh, that's absolutely right. I had uh, been a program manager at DARPA in the robotics field. And so it was a natural transition from working uh, in uh, robots that aren't cars to ones that are. So, yes. So I'm dying to know, Gil, when can I have that level four autonomous car? Uh, you know, we, we, we see Waymo, Cruise and the like uh, already uh, providing services in San Francisco and the like. Where's Toyota stand with its AV program? So what is important to understand about automated vehicles is that there's actually two different purposes for, uh, for having autonomy within cars. One of them was for safety, to have active safety inside of the car. And I know that you recently uh, did a program on so-called advanced driver assistance systems, right? And ADAS systems. And uh, the ones that we have now are very effective at certain things. For instance, automatic emergency braking is very good at stopping you some of the time from having a crash in the front when you don't press on the brake pedal within time. We believe that uh, automated vehicle technology can be used to significantly improve those systems and go even further in preventing you from having a crash. And one of the uh, pieces of work that we've done quite recently is to expand the envelope that a uh, what we call a guardian type of system, which is there as an active safety system to stop you from ha having a crash, uh, can actually work with the car in order to make sure that it doesn't hit something. And most of us are incredibly afraid to have a car skid, but if you're an expert driver and you're, you're trained really, really well, you can actually drift a car. And I'm sure that you know, you've seen lots of folks that have done it. I don't know if you've done it on, on your own, but it expands the envelope of what's possible in the controllability of the car significantly. And it makes it possible for the car to evade some obstacle. Uh, it could be a pedestrian, cyclist, you know, anything like that, or some other uh, car by really using much more of what's possible for the car to do. And some of the advances that we've made in, again, this active safety place is to 
get the car to be able to be autonomously controlled to actually drift around uh, something to not hit it. And that's very, very uh, neat. Um, the other area is uh, what some people call self-driving. And this is where the uh, person who ordinarily would drive the car can sort of take their hands off and say, I want the car to drive for me. Now, the technology inside of both of those systems, the active safety system and the self-driving, uh, are remarkably similar. They both have perception, they both have prediction, and they also have uh, planning to figure out um, you know, where they should go. But um, the, the most important thing to understand is that there's all these other difficulties with the self-driving end of things. And this has to do with you know, when will people accept uh, automated cars, how safe is safe enough? Because with a active safety system, its job is to save you when you make a mistake. With the self-driving system, it has to essentially be the best possible driver that there is, and you never want it to crash, right? And so it's very, very hard, and the bar is much, much higher for that to occur. So to answer your question, I think it's going to happen uh, in the short term for low-speed uh, shuttle. Uh, and that's where the speeds are so low, the vehicle can always come to a safe uh, stop. And I think the next step is going to be high-speed uh, trucking. And then finally, after those are done, I think we will get to the robotic taxis that is really the dream that we've had ever since we started the whole thing. Well, I got to tell you, I can't wait to be. That's the, that's the real future. I think electric is great, but I think autonomy is the real game changer. And with that, Gil, we're going to have to wrap this up. Thank you so much for your time today. Fascinating discussion. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to chat with you. AutoLine this week partnered with the Consulate General of Canada in Detroit to produce this episode.